Thank you for the song. It's inspired our hearts, encouraged us, and prepared us for worship. For the last 25 years, Tini and I have attended ASI conventions. We have missed very, very few during that period of time. And ASI has enriched our lives. We've been blessed in our fellowship with consecrated Seventh-day Adventist laypeople who are committed to the mission of the church and committed to working with church organization to see God's work powerfully impact this world for Christ. So thank you, ASI, for enriching our lives and for leading us to a broader vision of what lay people can do. This morning, as we talk about the one motivation stronger than any other that will finish God's work on earth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, open our eyes to see the cross in a deeper, fuller, broader, richer way. May we see Jesus giving up all for us and may we give all to him. May we sense his grace pardoning us, forgiving us, redeeming us, empowering us, transforming us, and may that make a difference in our lives. The hour is too late to come and to go as we are. Your people are assembled on Sabbath in Grand Rapids. Come and do something special in Christ's name. Amen. Robert Robertson was eight years old. He was living a carefree life, playing, enjoying life in a little English village. And there in 1743, his father died. Changed his life dramatically, as any child knows who at a young age has lost a father. Robert was bright intelligent, but headstrong, difficult for his mother to handle. She did everything she could, but he went from bad to worse. When he was 14 years old, his mother sent him to London to apprentice with a barber. She thought if he, he got a job and useful employment that that would make a significant difference in his life. It did not. Things went from bad to worse. He began drinking heavily, gambling, got in with the wrong crowd. And when he was 17, he and some of his buddies decided to go to an evangelistic meeting held by George Whitfield. And he wanted to mock the evangelist and wanted to create quite a scene at the meetings. But as Whitfield opened his Bible, and began to talk about Jesus. There was a strange stirring in this 17-year-old boy's heart. There was a strange awakening in his soul. He felt the warmth of Christ's love. He sensed the magnificence of Christ's grace. And although he did not go forward in the altar call that night, for three years, Robert was haunted by a vision of the cross that he got at 17 years old. 
When he was 20, December 10, 1755, he surrendered his life to Christ. It changed his life totally. Shortly thereafter, he took theology and became a preacher, Methodist preacher. He was preparing a sermon one Sunday morning for a little church in Norfolk, England. And to accompany that sermon, he wrote a song. The hymn's words speak of a grace we do not deserve and a debt we cannot pay. They speak of mercy beyond relief. They speak of forgiveness beyond our comprehension. They speak of grace beyond our human understanding. You know the song well, come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. You know the song, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. This morning, we look at the book of Romans and we cry out with the hymn writer, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans. Romans, the first chapter. You may have it in a printed copy. You may have it on your iPhone, your iPad. But look at the text and do not text. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 14 and onward. What is the single motivation that impelled the early church to take the gospel to the world? I suggest to you that the cross came before Pentecost. I suggest to you that being filled with grace comes before being filled with the Spirit. Unless the church comes to the cross and is broken at the cross and transformed by grace, the power of Pentecost will not fall. The cross always comes before Pentecost. Take your Bible and turn to Romans, the first chapter. And we're looking there at verses 14 through 16. Romans 1 beginning with the 14th verse. The Apostle Paul says, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then to the, G to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and is written, the just shall live by faith. Notice Paul makes three I am statements. He says, I am a debtor. He says, I am ready. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We will look at that first phrase this morning. I am a debtor. It is this sense of indebtedness that prompts and motivates 
Paul's witness. Paul was a debtor. In Christ he found mercy. In Christ he found forgiveness. In Christ he found pardon. In Christ he found grace. In Christ his life was transformed. In Christ he was made new. In Christ he had a new reason for living. And the passion that motivated him was this debt to the Christ that died for him. The crucified Christ redeemed him from the guilt of the past. The resurrected Christ gave him power for the present. And the returning Christ gave him hope for the future. Paul cries out from the depths of his being, I am a debtor. It is this sense of debt. Paul continues this, uh, describing this amazing grace through the, through the book of Romans. He, he could never tire of telling of God's grace. He, he was never bored of sharing the story of the cross. There was a passion within him. If you are motivated merely to make a name for your ministry, that is insufficient motivation. If you're motivated by pride, that is insufficient motivation. The cross of Christ lays the glory of man in the dust. If you talk more about your ministry than you do about Jesus, more about your accomplishments than you do about Jesus, something is wrong. If there's a tinge of pride in your soul about who you are, the third angel's message is fear God and give glory to Him. The book of Romans shares that glory is Jesus. It's the laying of all glory of man in the dust. When we don't care about who we are but who Jesus is, when we're more concerned about giving glory to Him than we are to ourselves, when we are more anxious to glorify His name than we are our name, when we talk more about Him than we do ourselves, when we don't care who gets the glory, but we desire His work to go forward powerfully, the Spirit of God will be poured out in an amazing way on a people that are united to give Him glory. Now, what is the basis of this indebtedness? What is the real story of the cross? What is the real story of grace? Romans, the third chapter. Romans chapter 3. We look at the book of Romans, the story of grace. Grace is amazing. Romans, the third chapter. We look there at verse 23 and onward. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is you, that is me. We are sinners by birth. We're sinners by nature. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In us there is no righteousness. We are condemned to eternal loss. Verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God set forth to be a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now notice the word propitiation. This is quite an amazing word. You can translate propitiation satisfaction. In Christ's death on the cross, He satisfies the justice of God in meeting the demands of a broken law. So you can translate propitiation as, as satisfaction. But there's an interesting association in the Greek language. The word propitiation is in a family of words 
that are the Hillistorian family. Now the word mercy seat in the sanctuary is the Hillistorian and propitiation is in a family of words that leads you to the sanctuary. In the sanctuary of Israel, in the court, there is the altar. It is there that the sacrifice is slain and the blood is shed. The priest takes that blood and goes into the holy place of the sanctuary and sprinkles the blood before the veil. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest enters into the most holy place of the heavenly of the earthly sanctuary and sprinkles the blood there on the mercy seat, the Hillistorian. Now be, in, below this mercy seat is the Ten Commandment Law, the Ark, it's the Ark of the Covenant. There on the mercy seat are the two cherubims. And so there on the Day of Atonement, reconciliation that has been wrought out in the court is finally applied to the entire universe in the universe ultimately becomes clean at the end of the Day of Atonement. The mercy seat is the place where God's love and grace and justice meet together in the ransom of sinners. The blood shed in the court is finally brought into the tabernacle in an ultimate day of atonement to cleanse the entire universe for sin to apply what Jesus did on the cross. So when Paul says here in Romans chapter 3, he talks about the fact in Romans 3 verse 23, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood. What is he saying? He's saying Christ satisfies the demands of the law. The just assumes the role of those that are unjust. The righteous assumes the role of those that are sinners. The innocent assumes the role of those that are guilty. The perfect one assumes the role of the ones that are imperfect. We see this again in Romans the fifth chapter. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 through 8. What is the story of the cross? The story of the cross is the divine Son of God, the one worshipped by all the angels, the one who knew no sin becoming sin for us. For cursed is everyone that hangs on the tree. The story of the cross is more than the story of nails through Jesus' hands and a crown of thorns upon his head and blood running down his face and his feet being spiked to a wooden bar. It is more than the story of Judas betraying him and Peter denying him and the Romans forsaking him and, and nailing them, him there and the Jews not quite understanding what was going on there. It is much more than that. The story of the cross is the story of the divine, sinless, perfect Son of God assuming the condemnation of sin for the entire human race. A judgment bar is set up on the cross and Christ is considered before the whole universe to be a sinner for you and me. And he experiences on that cross the death that I should have died, the death that you should have died. Not merely a physical death, but he plunges the depths of the tomb and he goes into hell itself for us as he hangs on that cross. 
Take your Bible, please, and look at Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans chapter 5. We're looking there at verse 6 and onward. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ did not die because we were godly. He died because we were ungodly. Notice verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's grace is unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unearned. Jesus died the agonizing, painful death that lost sinners will die. He experienced the fullness of the Father's wrath against sin. He was rejected so we could be accepted. He died the death that was ours so we could live the life that was his. He wore the crown of thorns so we could wear the crown of glory. He was nailed upright in torturous pain so that we could reign on a throne with the redeemed of all ages wearing robes of royalty forever. Marvel of all marvels. Wonder of all wonders. In our shame and guilt, Jesus did not reject us. On the cross, he descended to the depths of hell so we could ascend to the heights of heaven. I love the way Ellen White puts it. In language that no human pen could write, in words so sublime, so magnificent, that one almost does not want to read them standing but fall to their knees. Listen. Desire of Ages, page 753. Upon Christ, as our substitute and surety, was laid the iniquity of us all. He was counted a transgressor, that he might redeem us from the condemnation of the law. The guilt of every descendant of Adam was pressing upon his heart. Now think of it. He hangs on the cross. And the guilt of every descendant of Adam the guilt of every sin ever committed, the condemnation of every sin ever committed, the shame of every sin ever committed is pressing upon him. We continue. The wrath of God against sin, the terrible manifestation of his displeasure because of iniquity, filled the soul of his son with consternation. Listen, next paragraph. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of, God, of Jesus. What is Satan tempting Jesus about as he hangs on the cross? Next sentence. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish that the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the human race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as the sinner's substitute that the made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Satan says to him, if you go through with this, bearing the guilt and shame of the human race, you will never see your father again. The separation is to be eternal. And although Jesus said before the cross, you destroy this body in three days, I'll raise it up again. On the cross, the guilt of sin is so great, the shame of sin is so overwhelming, the condemnation of sin that he bears for the human race is so large, so huge. All he senses on that cross is that if he goes into that grave, 
he will be separated from the Father forever. The separation will be eternal. And Jesus says on that cross, I would rather experience hell itself and be not in heaven with my Father if Mark Finley can be there, if John can be there, if Mary can be there. This is a love so amazing. This is a love so incredible. This is a love so divine that all I can do is fall at his feet and say, I am a debtor, a debtor to grace. This is the story of a Christ that loves us so much that he would rather experience hell itself than have you lost. This is the story of boundless, unfathomable, incomprehensible, undying, unending, infinite love that longs for us to be with him through all eternity. Notice the text. This is what motivated Paul. This is was the passion beating in his heart. This was the fire in his belly. And this is the passion that will inspire an end time church to go to the end of the world. The, the passion of the cross, the transformation of the grace of Christ. We cry out with Paul in Romans 1. Notice what Paul says. Romans, the first chapter. Paul says, I am a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians. The Greeks were the educated elite. The Greeks were the sophisticated intellectuals. The Greeks were the higher classes. In Greek understanding of culture, the barbarians were everybody else. And so what is Paul saying? I'm in debt to the educated and the uneducated, to the rich and the poor, to the royal class and the working class. I'm in debt for all humanity. Catch a glimpse of Paul's passion for lost people. He couldn't stop telling the story. In Acts 16, he tells the story to a businesswoman in Thyatira called Lydia, and she's converted and becomes a member of ASI and uses her resources to spread the gospel. Later in the chapter, Paul and Silas sing God's grace in prison and a Philippian jailer and his family are baptized. In Acts 17, Paul shares God's grace with philosophers in Athens and some of them are baptized. Later in the book of Acts, he tells the story to Felix and to Agrippa, Roman rulers, and they stand there trembling before the grace of God. Paul goes to Rome and there imprisoned, he tells the story of God's grace and some in Caesar's household are baptized throughout Acts. Paul never tires of telling the story. He echoes it from Jerusalem to Rome. He proclaims it to Roman rulers and Jewish slave girls. He shares it in prisons, on ships, in marketplaces, in the countryside, in private homes, in public squares. Why? What prompts him? What motivates him? He is motivated by one thing. Not the desire to baptize more than anybody else. Not the desire to make his ministry the best, the highest, the greatest. Paul doesn't talk about himself. You read Romans, you read Philippians, you read Colossians, you read Ephesians. He is so in love with Jesus. Jesus has changed his life and Paul says, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's Paul, passionate about this Christ, transformed by this Christ. Did he have any difficulties? I'll tell you one thing. If there's one proud, selfish tinge in your body, when the going gets tough, you're going to drop out. You look at Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 to 28. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 to 28. Did Paul have problems preaching the gospel? Why didn't he give up? 
What kept him going on? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 to 28. Here he is telling his story. Verse 24. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Give up, Paul. This thing about preaching the gospel, talking about grace, this is tough. Five times they beat you? Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the country. I mean, that must have been an easy life, right? In perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often in cold, besides other things. I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's a little humorous. You know, he gives his story, I'm beaten. I'm shipwrecked. I stay in the night and day. Uh, they hit me with rods. They forsake me. Then he says, besides other things. Why did you keep doing it, Paul? What was the motivation? Why didn't you just give up? Why didn't you go home and make tents and live a comfortable life? Second Corinthians 5, he explains why. He summarizes the heart of the reason. And 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture that motivates evangelism, that motivates witness when you come to the cross and your heart is transformed by the grace of God. When you understand grace and its transforming power, when it wells up inside of you, and you see what Christ has done for you, that he's forgiven you, that in Christ your guilt is gone, in Christ there is no condemnation, in Christ there is a new power in your life that makes you over again, in Christ there is a new hope. When that living Christ enters your life, you cannot be silent. Whether you get accolades or you do not, whether the days are tough or they are not, whether the journey is long and the mountain is high and the road is rough, there's a passion in your life to tell the story. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we see it there, verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us. What's that word constrains mean? It compels us, it causes us to do things. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus that if one died for all then all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves and we who are saved by grace echo these same sentiments as Paul Grace liberates us, grace empowers us, grace changes us, grace transforms us, and grace compels us to tell the story. What do you say? We can do no other. Good news is for sharing, and we too are debtors for grace. What has Christ done for you? In the divine drama of destiny, in the providence of God, you too have been touched by grace. His grace has pardoned you. His grace has freed you from guilt. His grace has redeemed you. His grace has empowered you. His grace has led you to be a son or daughter of God. 
His grace has guided you into the Advent movement, a divine movement God has raised up in the last days of earth's history. You are here today because of grace. And grace motivates us. Great co grace compels us. We're not primarily motivated by numbers. We're not motivated by statistics. We're not motivated by the desire to attract, to attract attention. We're not mo motivated by the desire for not notoriety or publicity. We are motivated by one thing, we are motivated by grace. We're motivated by the love of the one who redeemed us. We're motivated by the love of the Christ that hung on Calvary's cross for us. We're motivated by a love that is so powerful, so redeeming, so life transformational. We can do nothing else but tell the story. What has motivated Adventists through the centuries to leave their families, to leave their friends, to cross oceans, to traverse desert sands, to climb rough mountain passes, to ford rivers, to brave mosquito-infested jungles. What, what has motivated these Adventist pioneers? One thing, the love of Christ. They were motivated by grace, and they could do nothing else but tell the story of a soon coming, returning Lord. One of the hallmarks of much of today's Christianity is many of us have lost the fire in our belly. We've lost the burning desire in our hearts. We've lost the zeal. We've lost the vision. We've lost the passion. But the witness of early Adventist pioneers is when they come to Christ and the cross and have a vision of that cross and when they're indebted to grace, and they sense there's a story to tell to prepare a world for the coming of Christ. They often have family, friends, braved unusual circumstances. I think of, of George Riffle. George Riffle and his brother Frederick were Germans living in Russia, Moravians, latter part of the 19th century. George Riffle and his brother decided to leave Russia, move to South America or North America. Frederick came to North America, settled in Kansas. George came to first Brazil and then he moved into Argentina. They were farmers, planted crops, Frederick in Kansas, George in Argentina. But George fell on tough times. He had six years of very difficult farming, crop failure, living among the German-speaking portion of Argentina decided to join his brother in Kansas, and he did. And there in 1885, these two brothers, George Riffle and uh, his brother Frederick, became Seventh-day Adventists. They developed some of the richest farms in the central portion of Kansas. They were prosperous business people, but there was a stirring in George's soul. There was a moving in George's heart. He could not live a comfortable, convenient life in Kansas. Farms were prospering. Crops were growing. But George Riffle had come to Christ. He was in debt. And he thought about that German-speaking community in Argentina. The late 1800s. And he said to his brother, I'm going to sell out everything in the farm and I'm going to go. 
I'm going to go to Argentina. I have to tell the story. I've got a passion in my heart. I've got a fire in my belly. George Riffle, this layperson, went to South America. At that time, we did not have one Seventh-day Adventist church in South America. Riffle gets there, begins sharing Christ, begins translating literature there in Argentina, a place called Crespo, Argentina. A number of people accept Jesus. They accept the Adventist message. They accept the Sabbath. They become Sabbath keepers. They're looking for the coming of Jesus. But there's no Adventist pastors, of course, no Adventist churches. So George Riffle, this layperson, baptizes 50 of them, writes to the general conference in glowing terms, brethren, I've been down here in Argentina working as a layperson. I just baptized 50 people. Come. The general conference wrote him an interesting letter back. My dear brother, you do not have authorization to baptize down there. Riffle writes them back. Riffle writes them back. Oh, I thank God for consecrated, dedicated laymen who want to cooperate with the church. Riffle writes them back. My dear brethren, thank you for giving me that counsel, but please send somebody quick because I have more people to baptize. <laughs> the brethren did it. And when Frederick Wheeler, rather, whether when Frank Westfall came in 1894 to Argentina, he found a whole group that Riffle and other literature evangelists had gotten ready to baptize. The Seventh-day Adventist Church in South America largely started because a Seventh-day Adventist business person was willing, prompted by the cross of Christ, sensing his debt to all humanity to share the story of Christ and the Adventist message to go to South America. And today, we have over 2,300,000 Seventh-day Adventists in South America, 10,600 churches in South America. I just got a, an email from the president of the South American division, Erton Kohler, and he was talking to me about comprehensive health evangelism. And we've just written a new book on health and spirituality. And he said, pass a mark. In our division alone, we are going to pass out 21,700,000 of this book on health and Jesus. What do you say? The church was started by lay people. I think of China. Abraham LaRue, a shepherd, a woodcutter, and living in, in California, comes to Christ. He has a burning ambition. He's praying one day. The Lord impressed him. Go to China. He's 65 years old. Writes to the brethren. And the brethren say, oh, thank you for your commitment, but you are too old to go to China. You're 65. And by the way, we don't have it in the budget. You know what that layperson does? Hitches a ride on a freighter. Goes halfway to China. Goes to Hawaii. But then he works witnesses there. He ends up in China, ultimately, shares the gospel in China, and eventually coming to China is Jan Anderson, who finds converts from Abraham LaRue, a lay people. If you look at the countries around the world, the Seventh-day Adventist Church 
is rooted in a lay movement. Scores of our countries were started by consecrated lay people who sensed the moving of the Spirit of God. Lay people, motivated by love, made sacrifices for Christ and witnessed in the first century. Lay people, motivated by love, have made sacrifices throughout the history of Christianity. And these same lay people are motivated by the love of Christ, are doing some amazing things in the last century of earth's history. The work of God will not flicker like a candle and go out in obscurity. Listen to the words of the prophets. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Look there, please, at verse 14. Jesus completes his sermon on last day events. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom. This what of the kingdom? This gospel. What is the gospel? It's the good news that independent of my merit, Christ has redeemed me on Calvary's cross. What is the gospel? It's the good news that in Jesus I'm justified. What is the gospel? It's the good news that in Christ I'm sanctified. The same grace that justifies me, by his grace he'll sanctify me. What is the gospel? It is the message of scripture that Christ died, Christ was resurrected, Christ is living, and Christ is coming again. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. The third, the first angel's message, Revelation, the 14th chapter. Notice in these end time messages that there is an end time hope. And that end time hope is that men and women transformed by God's grace, men and women empowered by God's grace, Methods will not finish the work. Television, radio, literature will be used of God, but they are not the prime agencies to finish God's work. God will use people, lay people, pastors, administrators, men and women like you and me who have an authentic experience with Christ, who've been transformed by the grace of God. What did the early disciples say when they were told not to preach? You remember what Peter said? He said, how can we not speak the things we've seen and heard? The world longs for an authentic representation of human life, in human life of the gospel. And the three angels' message, the first angels' message says, and I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to go to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. The preaching of the everlasting gospel will leap across geographical boundaries. It'll penetrate earth's remotest areas. It'll reach people of every language and every culture. It'll impact the entire world. The foundations of hell will tremble. For Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Grace is greater than sin. Love is greater than hate. Light will dispel the darkness. And Revelation 18 says, in verse 1, John says, I saw the earth lightened with the glory of God. 
the glory of his love, the glory of his character. I love the way Ellen White puts it. Listen to these words. Great Controversy, page 670. Servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration. What are their faces lighted up with? The grace of God. What are their faces shining with the holy consecration about? The passion. The fact that they're in debt to share the cross. Servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. Signs and wonders will follow the believers. What we are going to experience in end time is absolutely magnificent. Yes, persecution is coming. Yes, there'll be a time when church and state unite. Yes, there'll be an economic boycott. But my brother, my sister, look beyond that to the glory of men and women transformed by the cross. Paul says, God forbid that I should glory in anything save the cross of Christ. Men and women transformed by grace, filled by the Spirit, passionate about witness, who go out to the ends of the earth. Listen to this statement. Review and Herald, July 23rd, 1895. Many will be seen hurrying hither and thither, constrained by the Spirit of God to bring light to others. The truth, the Word of God, is as fire in their bones, filling them with a burning desire to enlighten those in darkness. Look at this one. Testimonies, Volume 9, page 28 and 29. I saw jets of light shining from cities and villages and from the high places and the low places of the earth. God's word was obeyed. And as a result, there were memorials for him. In every city and village, his truth was proclaimed throughout the earth. Memorials in every city and village. Is God's word true? What do you say? Is God's word true? Is God going to do what he said? Is he going to do it through you? Is your one goal to be broken at the cross. Is your one goal to bring his name glory? Do you have some self-centeredness still in the heart? Some pride still in the heart? You have a theological pride because you know the word and others don't. You have an institutional pride because your ministry is doing so good. You have a professional pride because of academic degrees. You have a pride because you're not proud. <laughs> when Jesus has a people that are more interested in his glory than their glory. When Jesus is a people who are broken at the cross and all they want is what he wants, all they care about is what he cares about. All they want is to bring glory to his name and not theirs. When Jesus is a people who are so charmed by grace, so filled with love, so transformed at the cross 
they will be safe for him to pour out his Holy Spirit upon to finish his work on earth. This is the destiny to which you have been called. This is heaven's appeal to your heart. This is Christ's appeal to your soul. Will you accept heaven's appeal? As a debtor to grace, will you fall on your knees and say, Jesus, I'm a debtor to grace. You paid such an infinite price for me. There's a passion in my heart. I've seen a vision of Christ. A Christ who would rather go into the grave and never come out than for me to be lost. A Christ that would rather be condemned for all eternity if that was necessary for me to be in heaven. A Christ with a boundless, unfathomable, undying love. I've seen that Christ. I have to tell the story. Are the words of your heart the words of that ancient hymn? I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered. From the curse he set me free. Sing, oh sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon. Paid the debt and set me free. Let's stand and sing it. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. Make this song your commitment. May, let Jesus touch your heart with the words of the song. May pride be crushed. May arrogance be demolished. May self be set aside. And may Jesus and Jesus only be exalted. Before we pray, the Spirit of God is speaking to somebody here today. What is righteousness by faith? It is the glory of God in laying man, women in the dust and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Christ loves you so much that heaven wouldn't be heaven without you. He did not remain in that tomb. He's resurrected from the dead. He's alive. And he's coming again. And he's longing for his church to want to be in heaven as much as he wants us there. He's longing for his church transformed by grace, empowered by love, indebted to grace to share his gospel with the world. Is there somebody here today? And this is not a general appeal, it's specific. Somebody here today that you sense this meeting is going to change your life. That you want to say, Jesus, there's something I've got to surrender. something I've got to give up. Lord, I want nothing between you and me. Lord, if you love me that much, Lord, I want to tell the story. Somebody that senses the call of God to service. Somebody that's sitting in their church, but you sense the call of God to witness. And you just want to raise your hand and say, I'm going out of these doors, sensing Christ's love in a new way, sensing Christ's grace, and I cannot be silent. I want to make a change in my life to tell the story. Can I see your hand? God bless you.
God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Uh, somebody else, a second appeal before I pray. You can only know that there is no self-centeredness in pride in your heart if you can honestly rejoice when somebody else's ministry is more successful than yours. Do you rejoice at the successes of others? Do you sense that we are a team as an Adventist family? Would you like to say Jesus? See, Jesus wants to do more through you as an individual. He wants to do more through you as a business person. He wants to do more through your ministry. We have not dreamed yet what God is going to do through ASI Ministries. We haven't dreamed yet. What God's going to do through pastors, what God's going to do through lay people, what God's going to do through, through initiatives of the general conference. We haven't dreamed of that yet. The earth will be lightened with the glory of God. Memorials for God in every village, in every town. Would you like to say, Jesus, take away any tinge of pride in me? May the glory of your name and your name alone be revealed. If, you, if the Spirit of God has put his finger on something in your life and you want to say, God, help me be broken at the cross so you can do something in my heart, would you just raise your hand? Oh, my Father, my Father. We've heard the voice of God. We've heard the appeal of the cross. We've heard the call of grace. May we go out of here deep within our hearts, crying with Paul, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Christ. For the cross comes before Pentecost and Calvary comes before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, work in us and work in these ministries and use us in ways beyond what we could imagine for the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.